Uh, this morning, we're going to think about Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And that's traditionally called the triumphal entry because, as you'll hear later, it describes how Jesus entered Jerusalem surrounded by crowds of people laying their clothes and long palm branches in front of, on the road in front of him like a makeshift red carpet, uh, singing his praises, dancing around him, cheering his arrival, right? The triumphal entry. No, we're going to start again. Start again, start again, start again, start again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, this morning we're going to think about Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And Matthew 21, 1 through 11 is traditionally called the triumphal entry because as you'll hear, it describes how Jesus entered Jerusalem surrounded by crowds of people laying their coats and large palm branches on the road in front of him like a makeshift red carpet, uh, singing his praises, dancing around him, cheering his arrival, right, the triumphal entry. Uh, now the thing about the triumphal entry is that five days later, Jesus is crucified, died, and buried. And then on the third day after his death, which is Sunday, he's raised from the dead. And it's Sunday because he's dead on Friday, it's the first day, he's dead on Saturday, it's the second day, and then he's raised from the dead on the third day, which is Sunday. So the triumphal entry starts the final week of Jesus' earthly life and his saving work. Uh, which is why the seven days between the triumphal entry, which we also call Palm Sunday, because of the palm branches that relate to Jesus' feet. Uh, so the seven days between Palm Sunday and Easter has traditionally been called Holy Week. And it traditionally marks seven days of directed reflection and prayer and celebration for what our God has done for us in Christ. Now having said all that, and I think uh, most of us after that, probably have like this question this morning, which is what does a week of celebration and a Sunday focused on praise have to do with a pandemic and social distancing and economic uncertainty? And what does it have to do with the cultural changes that so many of us see that those things are causing, but know that we don't fully grasp the extent or the significance of? Like, what does the triumphal entry have to do? with this time of confusion and fear. Well, if you read the text carefully and in context, as we're hopefully going to do this morning, you'll see that our questions actually aren't too different from the kinds of questions Jesus' contemporaries would have been asking. True, uh, they weren't going through a pandemic, but there was rampant, debilitating disease. There was economic uncertainty and war, and cultural changes. And like us, there was the normal life that continues to go on while all of that's happening, right? Babies are being born, people are going to work, and people are looking for work. People are trying to navigate relationships. Uh, people were still looking for happiness and distraction and for rest and for a sense of belonging and for a sense of community amidst all these changes and all these struggles and hardships. So the world is different from the time when Jesus walked with us, and it's profoundly the same. And the good news is that Jesus' triumphal entry 
is an incredible act and word of hope for those of us, which is all of us, who live in this real world of change and uncertainty. But like for people living with Jesus 2,000 years ago, and for those of us who are living with him now, it can also be an incredibly confusing act that Jesus did. Because the triumphal entry is an act of kingship and authority and an act of power that ultimately brings Jesus to public shame and to a horrendously terrible death as a political traitor, tortured on a cross. So all of that to say, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, is a time when we get to both celebrate the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we get to experience and confess our confusion at the way that Jesus expresses his lordship and victory within all of our problems and sufferings and uncertainties. So if you believe, or if you want to believe, in Jesus' power and presence in your life, but are confused, maybe even frustrated, or maybe even angry by the way he's expressing that power in his presence this morning, this text is for you. And to help us understand this, we're going to look at three things this morning. First, we're going to look at how Jesus enters Jerusalem. Second, we're going to look at the crowd's confusion. And then third, we're going to look at how Jesus uses suffering and humility and his word and his people to win. So first, how Jesus enters Jerusalem. Second, the crowd's confusion. Third, how Jesus uses suffering, humility, and his word from within his people to win. So let's read our passage and then we'll get into it this morning. Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Thus Father, reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray. Our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess that we need you this morning. We need this word of hope, and we need permission to be confused at how we are to receive it. And Lord, we need you this morning to relieve our confusion through the incredible um, saving work of Jesus. And so Lord, we pray that you would do that for us this morning through this passage Father, may the words of my mouth as the one called to proclaim your word, and the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and submit ourselves to your word and to respond in faith, 
be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're looking at is how Jesus enters Jerusalem, which is, of course, riding on a donkey. Now, that may seem like a pretty mundane answer, but in fact, it's a really important answer. Uh, because the donkey that Jesus rides on into Jerusalem is part of the context that the crowd is responding to. And therefore, it's important to helping us think through our own confusion about how Jesus exercises his authority in this world. Okay, so Jesus chooses to enter Jerusalem on a donkey uh, because of what the donkey symbolized in that culture. Now, contrary to what you might think, and, and maybe contrary to what you've maybe heard or read in the past, Jesus did not choose a donkey because it symbolized poverty or humble service or anything like that. Uh, Jesus chose a donkey because only really important and wealthy people rode donkeys. The donkey in this culture was a symbol of power and means and importance, which is why it was especially ridden by kings. But not when they were riding out to war. When kings rode out to war, they would ride on horses or chariots. But when kings were riding around their kingdoms in a time of peace, they would choose donkeys. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, then why aren't there more statues of kings on donkeys? Uh, like, there are lots of statues about kings on horses. And the answer is actually super fascinating. Um, it's kind of beside our point this morning. But it does go back to Alexander the Great who was called great because he conquered, you know, large swaths of the known world. And for Alexander, kingly greatness was not best symbolized by peace, but by military power. And so Alexander commissioned statue after statue of himself on horseback because for him, that's what kingship was all about, winning wars and being the best general. And for so many of the rulers that followed after him and looked up to him and wanted to be like him, like the Caesars of Rome, they copied him. And so they rode horses around their kingdom, even in times of peace, to symbolize their power. And they commissioned a lot of statues and paintings and all those sorts of things to show their military authority. That's beside the point this morning. What's on point, though, is that the donkey did symbolize, at this time still, kings coming in peace. And you can see that this was the case for a long time if you just look back in the Bible. So in 1 Kings chapter 1, David puts Solomon on his donkey and has him ride around the kingdom as a sign that Solomon is David's heir to the throne and to encourage a peaceful transfer of power. And just like Solomon riding on a donkey, so here, by riding in on a donkey, Jesus is very much claiming kingship, which the crowd recognizes when they cheer in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Now David was Israel's greatest and most important king. And calling Jesus David's son isn't just getting his lineage correct, it's claiming the throne of Israel for Jesus which is why they spread their cloaks in front of him like a red carpet, paving the way for their king as he entered into their capital city. Now, before we look further at the crowd, though, I want you to think about how odd it is that Jesus would choose to ride in on a donkey at this moment in time and not on a horse. 
because Israel is not at peace. Israel has been conquered by a foreign power with a military that this time was certainly the strongest in Europe and the Mediterranean and was undoubtedly one of the strongest in the world. And Jesus is riding in into the capital city of a conquered Jerusalem with hundreds if not thousands of Roman soldiers from all over the world looking on at this guy who's claiming to be king, but not a king coming at war to defeat them by swords and bows and chariots and horses, but riding in on a donkey as if this was a time of peace. And not just that. Along with being conquered, Israel certainly faced economic hardship and uncertainty. Not only because most people were subsistence farmers who lived on what they could grow and store each season and on what little they could barter from whatever extra they could produce, but also because Roman tax collectors were notorious thieves. So Rome might ask for, say, just make up a number, 3% of your harvest. The tax collector might come around and tell you Rome wants 7% of your harvest. And by the way, these Roman soldiers behind me, they're going to ensure that you are going to give us the full 7%. Now, when our country's founders were unjustly taxed, they started a war, right? When Jesus' people are unjustly taxed, he comes riding in on a symbol of peace. But not even just that. Think about what Jesus has been doing throughout the Gospels. He's been healing diseases. And right now, I think quite justly in my view, we're talking about the coronavirus as an enemy that we kind of have to think of as going to war against. Jesus has been at war, if you will, with disease his entire ministry, but he comes riding in on a donkey. And also, Jesus has been driving out demons, right? And Jesus will even talk about Satan and his minions as enemy soldiers who are trying to stop his kingdom from coming into the world. His kingdom, by the way, Jesus' kingdom, that he describes as manned by legions of angels. We in the church quite rightly talk about spiritual warfare. Jesus is our king of our kingdom, whose job it is to fight that war, and he comes riding in on a donkey. And I haven't even mentioned sin and death yet, right? Which the Bible calls, calls our greatest enemies. And Jesus comes riding in on a symbol of peace. If you lived in Jesus' day, that would be confusing, I think. If you live in our day, it's confusing too. Honestly, I think it is. Um, so think about what the Bible teaches us about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus ascends to heaven in victory after that resurrection. He sits down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, because he's won the battle. He receives there the name that's above every name. He's crowned the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's received all authority on heaven and on earth. And then in that victorious authority, he sends out his people to battle all the enemies that he's fought and conquered on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension. But when you look around at the tools that Jesus has given his people, right, the word, the sacraments, prayer, uh, loving service, good works, doesn't it seem like Jesus has sent us out on donkeys when he should have been sending us out on horses? 
Doesn't it sometimes feel like Jesus has misread our situation and misunderstood what our needs actually are? And I think that you can see that same kind of confusion in the crowds, even amidst all of this celebrating. So look at the crowd's response in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read that again. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now before I look at a couple of things, I need to say this. If you're like me, you've heard and read people describe the crowd's reaction to Jesus here. Their celebration that their king was coming into Jerusalem as sort of a result of their ignorant national desires, their ignorance of the Bible, their failure to really believe because they're celebrating the wrong kind of king coming into the wrong kind of kingdom. And uh, then that's always, right, contrasted with the hearer or the reader's response, right, our response, which congratulates us that we know better than them and that we're smarter than them and that we have more faith than them. But my friend, I'm not really sure that we do know better than them. Uh, not that we probably don't see Jesus a little more clearly than they did here, uh, but that's only because we've experienced Easter and they hadn't yet. But when it comes to understanding how Jesus exercises his kingship in a world at war, I'm not sure that we always do understand him better. So think about the crowd's response. Look at it here. They welcome Jesus as their king. They spread their cloaks on the road. They cut branches. They claim him as their king, right? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, praise the Lord, to the king of kings, right? We Christians do all that, I hope. And yes, Jesus, you are my king. Hosanna means praise the Lord. So praise the Lord that you, Jesus, are the son of David. We celebrate that you come. We celebrate it every Sunday. And we're looking forward to seven days of celebration for your earthly ministry. But hearing the crowds here and knowing what happens next, how Jesus is going to walk down paths of suffering and humiliation and judgment that seem more about defeat than victory, don't we get the sense that they aren't really ready for what Jesus' kingship means? And when Jesus leads us down roads of suffering and humiliation and mourning that seem more like defeat than victory, when Jesus, as our King, puts on our backs the cross that he promised to put on us, aren't we confused? Jesus, you're the king. Jesus, you're victorious. So what are you doing allowing coronavirus and social distancing and job loss and fear and our daily struggles to do these kinds of things to us? Where is that confusion in the crowd? Well, I think the confusion is there with the people who cry out with the words of salvation from Psalm 118 verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118 is a prayer and a celebration of how God delivers his people. 
But the crowd who chanted Psalm 118 as Jesus arrived on a donkey was not chanting it when he was dying on the cross. What they thought Jesus was doing, they realized they didn't really understand. The way they thought Jesus would exercise his authority is not the way Jesus actually did. And so they stood by later on in the Gospels in confusion and probably also in anger and frustration and judgmental silence. But notice that it isn't the whole crowd who chants. So Matthew is very clear in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks. Not all of the crowd. And given all we've said about donkeys being the symbol of peace and how Jesus was riding that symbol of peace into a conquered capital city, oppressed and needy, don't you think that they didn't join in because they were a little confused about the symbolism here? And as I thought about it this week, uh, I have to admit I probably would have been in this group because I know that my own personal instinct is to judge things by how I would do them. And if I were going to claim to be king, right, I'd get a horse, I'd get an army, I'd get a plan, I'd drive from out, I hope. And if I were the king of heaven, I would just send angels. Right? And I would also, by the way, arm the church with invincible armor. I would not do the things that Jesus did. And so I know, personally, that I would have either mocked him, like the people who stood around the cross, or just stood by like the, those in the crowds who did nothing in confusion. What are you doing? Why would you do this? This doesn't make any sense. And maybe you recognize your own response in these two reactions to Jesus today. Maybe you mock him as a fool. Uh, maybe you're holding off worshiping him in confusion. Or maybe you celebrate, but then you stand in disbelieving silence when Jesus doesn't exercise his lordship and kingship in the ways that you would expect him to. See, all of us, I think, are included here in this triumphal entry story. But the good news for us is that so is Jesus' solution and comfort to our confusion. And here's our final point. Jesus uses suffering, humility, and his word in his people to win. So back in verse 4, we're told that Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey for a specific reason. This took place, verse 4, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So this quote is from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. So chapter 9 of Zechariah is about how God is going to use Israel to bring judgment against Israel's enemies. Uh, now when we hear the word judgment, we usually think about like war and death and hell. But Zechariah whole book, really, is a, a little like the triumphal entry in that the images in it are not what you expect. They're a little confusing. Because in Zechariah 9, the nation's judgment through Israel is their salvation. This is not judgment unto death. It's judgment that brings life. And the way that God brings the saving judgment to the nations is explained in Zechariah 9, 
9 through 10. And I'm going to read these verses to you. I know you don't have a lot of context, but I will explain them when I'm done. So let me read Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And here's Matthew's quote. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now here's verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, and the war horse from Judah, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So here's, here's, here's the point. The point is that Israel is to rejoice greatly because her king, that is God, is coming to her. He's bringing salvation with him. He's coming to save Israel from her enemies who have conquered them, killed their children, left them exposed to hunger and disease and the sword. Right? This is brutal stuff. But this saving king comes to them in this context of death on a donkey. Right? Again, not the thing that you think God would ride out for salvation on. And then what does this king, what does God who's come to them riding on a donkey do? Well, he cuts off the chariots and the war horses from his people. That is, he takes his people's weapons of war from them. All the weapons of war and strength that his people could use against their enemies, God takes all of those away. And then what does God do? Well, you would think then, well, is God's going to, that's because he's taking all their weapons away because he's going to speak judgment to the nations himself. He's going to destroy them himself. But that's not what he does. God does not speak death to the nations who are here Israel's enemies in this context. He speaks peace to them. And in speaking peace to them, God establishes his unbreakable peaceful rule to the ends of the earth. So God comes in judgment, but he doesn't bring death. He brings salvation. And the salvation he brings doesn't involve all the things that we would you know, normally associate with salvation from dangerous armies. He doesn't bring tanks and horses and bows and guns and missiles. Instead, God brings his word, spoken from a weaponless, vulnerable people, and establishes peace between his people and their enemies. Now there's something I think even more interesting about this. So in verses 9 through 10, right, God is clear. All the weapons of Israel are gone because uh, God is bringing salvation with him, and his salvation is his word, right? And his word is what brings peace. Now listen to verse 13 of Zechariah 9. God is describing why this is. He says, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim, or Israel, its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, that's Israel's enemies, and I will wield you like a warrior's sword. Here's what God is saying. Israel, in her weakness, in her suffering, without weapons, becomes the weapon that God will use to defeat the powers of death. Israel's weakness, while God speaks his word from within her, is how God brings salvation to Israel and to the nations and establishes his saving rule, the ends of the earth. Or to use the words of our final point, God uses suffering, 
humility and his word and his people to win, to win peace, to win salvation, to win life together. So through their being conquered and losing their earthly strength, through their humility and suffering, and by using his word as it is given voice through his weak and vulnerable people, Jesus wins. Now, yeah, that can be confusing. God's rule comes through speaking within a people humiliated and without power. It's not an easy thing to grasp. But if you think about how God normally and often acts in the Bible and in this world, I think you can see how much it fits and how truly powerful of a way of acting it is. So think of Jesus, right? The Word of God made flesh. He comes without earthly power. He submits himself to the worst powers of the world, right? Death and shame and being judged for sin. And through his word, he declares his faithfulness to the Father even as he suffers there on the cross. And then he declares his word from the cross, it is finished. Right? Jesus, the word of God in flesh and weakness, wins through his words of faithfulness and declaration. And then he's raised from the dead, and he sends that word out in his people. And they go without armies, and they go into persecution, subject to all the common pains of human life. Disease, war, suffering, sin, hardship, death. And they go out not carrying swords and guns, but with the word of the gospel. And as they go out, the idols of the ancient world, the false gods who had temples built to them, money offered to them, those gods disappear into the classics departments of colleges and universities today. And as the church grows from 12 to a few hundred, eventually it's grown today to a third to half the population of the earth. And she sees her greatest growth in places of deepest suffering. From weakness and humility, Jesus sends his word out from within his people, and he wins. He brings peace. He brings redemption. He brings eternal life. See, my friends, the way Jesus enters in triumph is confusing until we learn the profound truth of what Paul says, that Jesus uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong, and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that we all consider to be something. Or even more succinctly, through our weakness, he is strong. Because God exercised his own strength through his own weakness. So my friends, this triumphal entry, it's a good event for us today. Our situation of pandemic and social distancing, our daily struggles, they are weakness. They make us weak. They make us feel weak. They make us feel afraid. They make us feel humble. It is suffering. But that is simply the context for Jesus to act. These things are not a sign that he has abandoned us or rejected us or failed us. They are a sign that the king is here. And that through his people's suffering and weakness, 
Jesus will use his powerful word as only he can to bring the salvation that only he is able to bring, to bring redemption and hope and life out of death and despair and fear. The triumphal entry is the way that Jesus enters into our suffering to exercise his kingship in an amazing, redemptive, kingdom-expanding way. So let's welcome our king. Let's follow our king as he leads us through this humbling time of the cross into the resurrection glory that he brings with him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you um, that you exercise your kingship in such a, a powerful and wonderful way. And uh, Lord, we ask that in your mercy, uh, you would teach us how to trust you, um, though it confuses us how you act. And Lord, we pray that you would exercise your authority now in our sight in such a way uh, where we can all stand amazed at, at your redemptive presence, and at your redemptive power. And uh, Lord, we ask this because we deeply need you to act to defend us as our king. And we deeply desire to see you act with clarity and with faith. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.